welcome to episode 151 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris, and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the nighttime sky. And this podcast is for anyone else who likes going out under the stars. How was your week, Shane? Did you get any observing in? Um, before I get into that, I, we're, we're out of sync, aren't we, on our, our episode count number? <laughs> It's okay. Yeah, yeah. Just, uh, just in case anybody's listening and is wondering kind of what's going on, we, uh, uh, we're, we're just out of sync. So we'll, I think after this week, we'll probably be back to the normal incremental episode number. <laughs> I think so. I think so. Yeah, we, we ended up re- having, we forgot. I forgot about the objects to observe um, in the September 2021 night sky. And so after we recorded the previous two episodes, we had to go ahead and record that one. And uh, that's how we got out of sync, folks. Yeah. And then I think last week we were so excited to talk about our night of observing that uh, we didn't realize we were recording what probably should have been 151 last week. (laughs) Anyway, here we are. Um, You will get all the episodes eventually. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Keep them guessing. Um, I did not get any observing in this week, unfortunately. Um, it just didn't work out for me. I, I was pretty tired in the evenings and, uh, the most I did was I I got a new eyepiece case, like, a Mm. you know, something for my uh, minimal glass eyepieces because I, I outgrew my current storage. Um, so now I have to carve up the pluck foam to make all the, uh, eyepieces fit in there, but that's, that's about the only astronomy I I really did other than, um, Uh, read some emails and, you know, reply to a few. So how about you? Yeah. I mean, I, I felt kind of bad. I only get out one night on, on Friday, but we did have, we did have one or two good nights and I had hoped to come out, but uh, yeah, I just had a bit of a stomach ache on the night that was going to be uh, probably uh, the, the best of those nights. And uh, yeah, I just, just wasn't, uh, wasn't really uh, well, I was, I was sick enough. I think I ended up missing a day of work even, but, um, yeah, just not well enough. You know, if I, if I'm, if I'm not well enough to work, I'm probably not well enough to go to astronomy. It turns out strangely enough. Um, so yeah, I missed, missed one night, but, uh, Mike and I came out here on, uh, on Friday and did, uh, we got a pretty good, pretty good session in, um, on Friday night, even though it was, it was kind of cloudy ish. We had some, moderately thick cloud like basically up, up to about the ecliptic but into the overhead and and into the the sort of uh overhead northern sky it was uh it was okay for the most part you know we were able to to see quite a bit um and kind of get before as i get into that when one thing um just want to talk about briefly is you you i and phil were chatting about uh uhc filters and he said something about a UHC filter working kind of like getting you to a darker site. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, you and I talked about how when we use that UHC filter at your site, it really made certain nebulas, you know, really pop out. Like it almost like, you know, we were at a darker site. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess maybe the, the point to clear up here is, is that, it, it really only works on certain objects, right? Like a UHC filter um, will help with some nebula, but it really, you know, if you can't see them very well from your current site, a UHC f- filter may not actually do a lot to help you see it better, um, mm-hmm. depending on how much light pollution there is. 
Um, it really just enhances the view. And, and again, only for Nebula, you won't see fainter stars with the UHC filter. You won't see fainter galaxies with a UHC right. filter. It really right. just helps to enhance some of the details within certain emission nebula. And, um, you know, as such, it's, it's a nice, it's a nice tool to have in the, in the tool chest, but, um, you know, like, Unless you're really chasing nebula, I, there's many nights I don't even put a UHC filter into the light path. Yeah, the conditions have to be just uh, uh, good enough. Um, and then, you know, when you do have those nights, so like I, I will often use them. Uh, almost I've had nights where I never took the UHC filter out. So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, the, and the other thing we put in, in the responses to Phil about this, um, if anybody is thinking about buying a UHC filter, I do recommend doing some research on it. Um, there's a lot of different manufacturers out there. And just because it says UHC filter doesn't mean that they all perform the same way. Um, yeah. there's, there's been a lot of... Um, I don't know, I guess sort of like testing done on cloudy nights by some observers where they've, they've bought in multiple brands of UHC filters. And then over many, many nights of observing multiple objects, they, they give the feedback, you know, about which filters yeah. seem to produce the right, the best results. Um, so, you know, if you are thinking UHC filter, it is worth doing some research, research to find out which one uh, you know, is, is the one that'll probably make you the happiest because, um, you know, some of these UHC filters, um, you know, may be disappointing, you know, depending on, uh, which wavelengths they filter. And, and really, I think part of it just goes into the, like the quality control of making the filter. So a UHC filter blocks a lot of light wavelengths, but allows certain ones to pass. Yeah. And, you know, some of the manufacturers out there aren't super consistent on, on which wavelengths are blocked versus which ones are passed. And, uh, you know, that results sometimes in some views that aren't uh, improved or maybe in some cases even diminished. And I think that um, a good recommendation, and I, I know I have this filter, Mike does, uh, you, you may have it as well. It, it's a pretty common filter. Um, a good place to start if people are wondering about, about nebula filters and and uh, how they work and and maybe if they're if there's something they want to get into is to look at the Bader slash Celestron UHC S, which is a uh, almost like a combination of a broadband filter and a narrowband filter. It includes more than a typical UHC filter, um, which is nice for instruments smaller than about uh, four inches. And um, and I have one of those. Um, in, in conjunction with all my other filters, I have a lot of filters and uh, I, I still use that filter because there's some nebula where you just want to filter out a little bit of the light pollution. You sort of want that minimal impact and I actually find as we get to the darker and darker sites, um, I might not uh, need as, as uh, an extreme uh, a filter. So using a, a narrow band filter uh, might be more, uh, detriment to the observation than, than just using one that, that just sort of takes down that background sky glow. So, so for me, that, that's sort of my, my recommendation, Shannon, if you have sort of a, an entry point uh, filter you might recommend. Um, I'm a big fan of the UHC filters. I, I think overall they, they're the most, the most versatile um, in terms of showing or having improvements on the largest amount of objects. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, UHC is probably the way to go. Um, and then, you know, there's, there's a big price difference between inch and a quarter and two inch, uh, when mm -hmm. it comes to filters. 
And, you know, I know you've gone, I think, almost exclusively uh, down the two-inch path. Yeah. Um, yeah. I do have some two-inch filters, but I most of my focus is actually on inch and a quarter um, because they are just a little more economical. Um, they pack like they're smaller. Um, and uh, for my grab-and-go setups, I'm probably not taking any two-inch eyepieces. Like if I'm flying somewhere or, or you know, uh, taking a quick look, like even when I went out to your, uh, your site a, a week or so ago, you know, I brought out the 50 millimeters yeah. and yeah, I was running the Nagler on the one, but that's not going to be a common setup, you know? So, yeah. so for me, uh, inch and a quarter eyepiece or, uh, filters just, uh, kind of fit all of my setups, no matter what kind of observing I'm doing. And, um, you know, my 24 millimeter panoptic provides a fairly wide field of view in just about all of my telescopes. So I'm, I feel like I'm still getting, um, you know, most, or, or I'm still able to observe most of the objects I want to without any real detriment there. But, um, you know, the, the two inch filters are great too. And obviously, you know, with the right eyepiece can be pretty stunning, but maybe that's my only other, my, my only other thought is, uh, you know, don't disregard the inch and a quarters. Yeah. And, uh, I think it just depends like with, with your setups, uh, makes, makes more sense. Um, and just the way, you know, like you're like, everybody's different the way they observe. Um, for me, it's kind of, kind of two inch or, or bust because if, if I'm observing, I'm observing with uh, two inch eyepieces. <laughs> so, right. yeah. so that, that's just the way that I observe. And, you know, um, that that's not how everybody observes clearly. Um, so if I'm going out that that's what I'm taking and usually I'm going like, if I'm traveling, I'm going to really, really dark skies, um, sometimes pretty extreme places. Um, and so the, the, the two inch uh, filters allow me, uh, to use the lowest power and the largest exit pupils, uh, possible and get the absolute widest fields, uh, possible, which is, um, for targeting the types of objects that I like to observe. Now, if somebody's observing planetary nebula, uh, like some people really are going after all the planetaries that, uh, that's sort of out the window. It just that, that, that sort of uh, setup doesn't make any sense. You might as well go with the uh, one and the quarters. Um, but yeah, just, just from my own, uh, observing, uh, that that's how, that's how I roll. And I've got, uh, I think I've got just about all of them. I think there's one or two, uh, nebula filters that, that I don't have. I don't have the comet filter. And I think there's a, a type of broadband filter I don't have, but, um, I think the best one I've ever used is, is, a is the newest Lumicon UHC. And it is, I, I think it is the, the best filter I've ever used. It is really stunning. It's rather expensive, um, but it is absolutely phenomenal. I can't get over how, how good that filter is. So um, that one is, is uh, probably if someone was gonna just have one filter, but really liked filters, I think you could get that filter and, uh, and just have it. I, I think that's just a great filter. I think you have the, the Lumicon UHC as well. No, I went with the, uh, the Teleview one, uh, the oh, new, okay. yeah. the new Teleview, uh, Nebu stars are like a UHC filter made by astronomics. And, um, they're, they're in that upper echelon as well. Uh, mm. you know, but I, I re like, I just acquired that to oh, gee, uh, earlier summer. And I, to be honest, I really haven't used it. So I, I don't know how it stacks up. I do know looking through your Lumicon last week that that was phenomenal. Um, yeah. you know, it really did a great job. Yeah, and I did buy after uh, uh, discussing with you uh, quite a bit. I, I bought the Nebu Star um, H Beta, I think it is. Oh yeah, yep. 
And, and it's funny, you know, I, I read things and in my mind when I read it, I was like, Neb Buster, like Neb Buster. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that works. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Brings me back Anyways. to Buotis. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But that's how I, that's how I read it. I thought that was so amazing. And then I'm, I think I said it, you're like, it's, it's Nebu star. Well, may, oh. maybe it's not, maybe it is Neb Buster. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I just this, thought that was well in, in keeping with Teleview's uh, uh, sort of upper shelf, um, you know, uh, persona, probably it is Nebu star. Um, but to me, I, I read it as Neb Buster, but any, anyway, um, but, but I was thinking about this. So the reason why I was thinking about this, all this, this stuff, this, this has actually nothing to do with what I was thinking about, uh, is that, is that when, when Phil was writing and he was writing about, you know, uh, making, ma- making, a, a site that isn't as dark, um, sort of darker, um, through, through a tool and, and there is one tool to uh, make, make fainter stars appear. And I don't okay. know if you know what I'm referring to. Um, I don't know. I'll, I have, I have an idea, but I'm kind of curious. What is, what are what do you have there, Chris? It, it's the observing chair. Ah, uh, yes, yes, yes. And I don't, I don't know. We didn't talk about this before, but I, I don't know what your thoughts does. Does the observing chair get you fainter stars? Uh, yeah, I think it does. Um, I've, you know, you've, you've observed with me now for a long time and, and you know, that one of my, like, like, I don't think I've ever observed maybe once or twice, but like 99% of the time I have a chair with me when I'm observing. Um, it just, it like getting comfortable at the eyepiece, whether it's planetary observing or whether you're going for some fainter stuff, when you're comfortable, you see more and it's just, it's that simple. And you know, standing is not uncomfortable, but you're not as steady. Like you're there, you know, there's a little bit of sway, like you just, you're never perfectly still. Um, but when you're sitting, it changes and you see a lot more when you're sitting. Um, and, and I totally agree. You know, if you want, if you want to see, uh, more, more fainter stuff from where you're currently observing, just sit down. <laughs> and, and I think one thing to add is it has to be a good observing chair, like pretty much in my opinion and in my experience, it almost has to be uh, built for observing. And there's a couple things that people don't uh, realize when, when they're, they're either, uh, you know, buying something else or using something they already have as, as an observing chair. And that, that can work, but dedicated observing chairs, um, typically they're, uh, they're adjustable for, for what, uh, what people are going to use them for at an instrument, uh, just the way that they adjust. Even if you buy a non-observing chair that, that has adjustments, um, they can be challenged by those adjustments or not, not be designed to work under um, dewy and, and temperature changing conditions. And so sometimes they can slip and you can fall. Um, and then the ones that I've seen, like the other options that I've seen are actually anything that's decent, um, is often as expensive or more expensive than, you know, what I end up getting. I, I think what I end up getting costs a couple hundred bucks Canadian uh, from Burlaback. And, uh, you know, I get it on sale and, and often observing chairs go on sale. And I, I think it was actually a little bit less expensive than buying something that isn't an observing chair, but, but that would work, you know, whether it's like a drum chair or, 
or something to, to that effect. Um, the observing chairs tend to work a little bit better on uneven ground. Like my ground here is relatively uneven, unfortunately, um, or fortunately, it doesn't, it, it's not a big deal, but the observing chair, I can always get it into a position. The chair has an angled seat um, because you don't want to sit necessarily right back in an observing chair. You, it needs to tilt forward a little bit. Um, whereas a traditional chair will often be flat or sometimes tilt uh, the, the wrong way. And this, this causes you to have an uncomfortable position. But when it's tilted forward, um, it kind of is putting you into the eyepiece. And, uh, and that's what you want. Um, and, and this makes a huge difference. Often the seats are a little bit wider um, or you know the, the way that they're positioned is a little bit better so that you can make sure that you're getting a good position uh, at the eyepiece when it's dark. And uh, that works really well. Um, and usually you can, uh, you know, even turn on a bit of an angle because often we're not able to position the chair correctly around our tripod or, or dob or whatever. And by having, having a wider seat on the, on the chair, it, it allows for that. Um, but yeah, um, for sure, 100%, um, you know, when Mike and I were observing on um, Friday night, we actually did a comparison of seated versus standing looking at M92 mm -hmm. and, and when we looked at a chain, I'll tell you, we were easily going a magnitude feeder easily. Anyway. Just while, while seated. Yeah. While seated. So while standing, um, you know, you can see it and you can see it well, mm -hmm. and you'll see a few stars that are, that are sort of arcing. I think they arc up and towards the North uh, and M92 was a globular cluster up in Hercules and, and we could see these stars um, but you barely get those stars that are arcing up into the north uh, under under the conditions we're under, which were sort of hazy, um, not overcast, but we definitely had some haze in. And while, while standing, you really couldn't see those. They were like maybe averted vision only, and you could see maybe a small handful of them. And then when when we try to seed it, um, you could you could see them super well. So, for example, standing at my four inch. Um, Takahashi, I could just barely get those stars, but seated on Mike's three inch, I could easily get those stars. So I, I, I think he was reaching at least half a magnitude or close to maybe the magnitude deeper than my four inch was when I was seated at his three inch. And then when I sat at my four inch, uh, the next day, Mike sent me a sketch somebody had done uh, through a 10 inch under somewhat similar skies. And, uh, and I would say that uh, maybe they weren't seated comfortably or, or maybe their conditions weren't, weren't as good or something, but we were able to see, um, at least as far as that 10 inch sketch had gone under similar skies while we were seated very comfortably, uh, you know, at my four inch. So, so that will get you deeper. That will get you like a whole category of sky, uh, fainter. If, if people are looking for, uh, a trick, uh, that will make your sky sort of uh, magically, um, you know, make them appear more still and, and reveal fainter stars. Just, just like you were saying, Shane, uh, you, you get on that chair and, and, uh, you can see deeper. For sure. And, and also, like I mentioned too, at the start, like don't, don't ignore the value for planetary or lunar observing, um, you know, instead of spending thousands of dollars on Zeiss Abbey orthos, uh, that are no longer available, um, just get a chair and just the chair alone will allow you to see more detail on the planets uh, and considerably more in my opinion. Um, again, you know, you're comfortable, 
Um, you, you can get everything just aligned perfectly. So you're really just tilting your head down to look through the eyepiece and it's just such a better experience and, and you see more. Yeah. And any chair will do like when I was first getting going, I, I just used a stool that I found in our, in like our old back shed and the old house my parents owned. And I, I had, it was all rusty. I just painted it because it was, <laughs> it was so rusty. You would never even want to sit on it. And then, um, that, that sort of got me halfway there. And then a friend of mine made me an observing chair. Um, it was, uh, it was a little bit out of balance, I guess is the way to put it. And, and so again, it, it was fine. And I used that a lot for years. And then eventually I kind of had worn that out. And then I went for a couple of years without an observing chair. And, uh, you know, sometimes I do prefer to stand anyway, especially like we sit all day at our desk and I'm kind of like ready to stand. Um, but then, uh, you know, I recently got that, uh, that Burlapak chair, I guess, in the past year. And, uh, yeah, it, it's just such, such a great, uh, such a great seat. And yeah. Anyway, can't, can't recommend the observing chairs, uh, enough. So I came out, came out on Friday and, uh, I set up my AZ GTI. I was going to take another look at it because I've been making that binding noise mm-hmm. and, uh, it wouldn't even power on. Oh geez. So I'm kind of disappointed there. So a year and a day after I got it, it started making like a like a heavy loaded noise, like like as if I, you know, had my telescope really out of balance or or I, you know, put too much load on it, which was weird because I've been using the same telescope on it for a year. And then uh, even when I had nothing on it at all, it was still making that sound. And I was like, oh, that's weird. So, you know, I I, you know, tried to you know, a few times in the city, just without anything on it, verified that it was still doing it. I thought, oh, I'll just bring it out here and take another look at it. And when I plugged it in out here, I, I got nothing. So take it back to the city today with me and, and see maybe it was just something that night. But uh, yeah, I'll be pretty disappointed if I can't get that Skywatch or Easy GTI running it. Uh, that, that's kind of disappointing that it worked for a year. I think the, the warranty on it is a year. So that, that's really disappointing because I think it was like a a four four hundred fifty dollar mount. So we'll we'll see what happens there. Yeah, that is disappointing because um, you, you know you've had it for a year, you've used it, but I wouldn't say you've used it like you know excessively or or abused it by leaving it out in the rain or putting no. you know, telescopes that are too large on it. Like this thing should still have lots of life left in it. Um, yeah. Hmm, hmm. Well, hopefully it's nothing major, and and hopefully you know you can get it going again because that. That would be disappointing. Um, yeah, it would. I mean, I looked online and, you know, I've watched a lot of videos and, you know, it seems like they, when they build them, they often leave metal filings in them. And part of me started wondering if maybe some of the metal filings had uh, slowly just sort of worked their way around. And then the first thing I had was that it was um, doing this sort of, uh, sort of like artificially acting as if it, it had way more load because of maybe these filings get in there. And then, um then maybe they get into the electronics as well and just shorted it out. I don't know. So, uh, so I contacted, uh, who I bought it from, but I didn't hear back. So I'm going to contact Skywatcher this week. Cause, uh, if, if I can't even get it to power up now, that that's like a whole different kettle of fish than just maybe, uh, you know, I thought maybe we would just pop it apart and, and clean a bearing or something like that is one thing, but if it's not even powering on, well, you know, kind of all bets are off. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So yeah. Well, well good, we'll good luck that. with that. Um, gee, yeah. I hope you can get it back up and operating. Yeah. D- did some other observing though. Um, you know, we, we did a couple hours anyway. Um, 
had some pretty good views of Jupiter. Saturn, it seemed like it was just a little bit too unstable for Saturn. And I guess Saturn's a bit low and it was sort of, Saturn was just low enough that it was, it was more in the murkiness and we just couldn't quite get the power or the sky to, to give us much detail, but, but Jupiter was, was pretty good. We were able to see, um, I think it's the Northern band is a little bit stronger than the Southern band these nights. And yeah, we were clearly able to see that and some fine, fine detail from time to time. Hunted up M81 and M82. Uh, they were pretty faint through the haze. Um, you know, and, uh, that area of the sky definitely had more, more haze in it. But, uh, like I, I think I was saying last week, kind of taught myself how to, uh, how to find those sort of, uh, by, by coming off certain stars and star hopping and that sort of stuff. Cause usually I just kind of, kind of wing it and sort of scan around a general area and, and find them within a minute or so. But then some nights if I'm tired or whatever, like I actually don't know the, the stars, I kind of just generally know where they are. And I was like, okay, I should just learn that pattern of stars. So I did that last week. Um, looked at M31. I mean, you and I had a pretty good view of M31 last week. Yeah, yeah, like the, um, the, like the, the extensiveness of it was so apparent, which you need dark skies, you know, to see that. Like it's an extremely wide object. Um, but there's that, that dust band. Um, I think it's like a, on the top side of it if you're using a refractor. Mm. Um, that like it it wasn't like painted black with great contrast, but I felt like with averted vision, I was starting to see that dust lane a little bit. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, I could I could see that as well. And so uh, one thing I I didn't take a look at was there's a there's actually a star cloud in uh, M M uh, M thirty uh, thirty one uh, called NGC two o six. And so this, this weekend, I was like, oh, I really want to see that. So uh, put it on there. And the way to find the star cloud, and I'm just using my four inch, and it's, it's pretty neat to see a star cloud in another galaxy. Mm -hmm. And uh, so there's two companion galaxies to Andromeda. There's M32, which is a small, um, I guess like it's like a dwarf spheroidal or something like that. Anyway, it's a small little galaxy. Um, that's very close to the main disc of Andromeda. In fact, you can still see it in like one of the fainter arms. And then there's M110, which is uh, larger and more diffuse. It's not quite as bright. So first you need to identify M32, the smaller, rounder, little one. And nearby that galaxy is a star that's fairly bright. And it's in the foreground and the star would be in our own Milky Way galaxy. Um, but it sits in front of sort of the outer disk of uh, M32, uh, sorry, M31, very nearby M32. And, and you make um, an isosceles triangle. And mm -hmm. at, at the most distant point, uh, that would kind of point to where uh, the star cloud is in the, uh, in the outer outer arms of, uh, of the Andromeda galaxy M31. Uh, and you can do this just low power. Like I'm just using my, my four inches, uh, uh, widest field of view, which I think gives me like about 3.7 degrees or, or larger, um, with the 40 XW. Um, but it's just so cool to be able to see this little, um, this little star cloud. I actually looked it up on, on Wikipedia. Um, and there was an image there from, uh, from M, uh, M31, 
uh, from a guy named David Dayag. And uh, I, I sort of put that in there. I don't, I don't know if we can redo that or not, but if people go to Wikipedia and they take a look, you'll, you'll see the uh, M30, uh, 31 galaxy. And then uh, you find 32, you find little star, and then you make a, make a triangle. Have you ever seen that, uh, that star cloud, Jim? I think in my 12 inch I did, I'd have to check my observing notes. It, it, it kind of strikes me as a memory. Um, I'm looking at a photo though from Tenho. Uh, uh, he's got some posted as well. So kind of neat. Oh yeah. A Saskatchewan connection. There you go. Yeah. You could probably ask Tenho if you want to put a, put a photo up. Um, yeah. So that was kind of neat. And uh, kind of once you find that, it, it makes it a little easier to trace out that, that larger um, dark lane because it sort of is where that dark lane begins. And, uh, and you know, after that, I was able to see it. Um, Mike had M27, which is a, uh, a planetary nebula that we talked a little bit about last week. And the planetary nebulas, these are um, stars that are like our sun that have lived out their lives and, and they're now giving off their gas back into space. And uh, yeah, it looked pretty good. Even through the haze, we could actually uh, see it quite well. And then he, you know, he's up in that general area, told me that he, he was looking at an asterism that's very similar to Kemble's in, uh, in Cygnus. And I think that's one of David Levy's um, asterisms. I, I see it marked in the, in the photographic atlas from Cambridge. Yeah, and at the end of the session, we, we spent a long time looking at M13 and M92 and using different powers. I was using about, like I think it was like around 120 or 130 power on them. And, um, yeah, I could really see, uh, quite a few stars and, you know, a lot of, uh, sort of extensions and, and details in, in those two, uh, those two globular clusters. And yeah, we also did just some panning run. We, we did look at Kemble's cascade and looked at the, uh, Kemble's cascade is, is up in Camelopardalus and it's a, uh, it's an asterism of these, the straight line of stars, but it terminates at uh, an open cluster called the NGC 1502. And so we, I put the power up on that and sat there for a while looking at that. And there's sort of like these, these two bright stars, almost like a set of eyes sort of staring back at you in, into space from NGC 1502. Yeah, it was, it was kind of like a, like a neat night because it was just uh, like pretty mediocre conditions. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we had some cloud and that around and had, had some farming activity nearby. So for, for half an hour or so, we just came down and, and sat inside and, uh, you know, sort of, it was getting cool. It was nice to warm up and then, then went back out after half an hour and they were done the farming stuff. And uh, yeah, we were able to, uh, to get back, back to observing. And yeah, it was, it was pretty nice. It was not cold. It was relatively warm. I think it got down to about eight degrees by the time uh, uh, we packed up, I guess. Um, I think we packed up around 1130 or so and, yeah, we put in maybe two or, or two and a quarter hours or something like that over, over the three hours we were out. So yeah, it wasn't, uh, wasn't too shabby really. It was kind of a, kind of a neat night. Always nice to be able to get out. I think might have one more night this week and kind of fingers crossed that Tuesday will be clear if you're interested. And mm-hmm, get out that night. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully it is clear. Um, you know, and on those, on those nights when there is a little bit of haze, looking at something like M27, which is pretty much directly overhead uh, at our location, um, is the right thing to do, right? Because you're looking through less atmosphere. So, you know, that'll probably be the better part of the sky compared to, say, 30 degrees up or something like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, we never even bothered looking in Sagittarius. I mean, you could hardly see. There's a few stars in Sagittarius we could see, but mm-hmm. you, you couldn't really even see any stars till you get up to like Aquila area anyway. Um, but yeah, in, into the overhead. And then and then as Mike was leaving and I'd already sort of packed up my gear, it did kind of clear out again into uh, took another. Then that's when I got my good view of M31. And, and just as he was, he was uh, pretty much packed up and, and uh, took a look at a couple of things over there. Look, look at the Pleiades. Um, thought we could see the nebula, but we weren't really sure because of the haze. You and I looked at the Pleiades last week, and we definitely saw the nebula. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It we we had pretty good conditions last week. Like the transparency was was really good, and seeing was okay. Um, it was uh, you know we we had really nice night. Yeah, and. Uh, yeah, and you and I were able to look at the California. I mean, I I searched for it this week, but it was like it, there was just too way too much haze. It took a while looking at the Alpha Perseus cluster, which is the uh, OB Star Association, right in the center of, of Perseus. Uh, yeah, that was that was pretty good, and uh, uh, spent a long time again seated looking at the double cluster. Um, yeah, there was times where. We had bad seeing conditions actually as, as they were farming nearby. I think they were doing some tilling and stuff like that or final cut and and the sky to the north, even though it was clear, became like like, like very, very unstable. I don't even know how to describe it. It looked like jello through the telescope. So uh, that, that's one of the reasons why we came in. And once once they were done with whatever they were doing as they were turning over that fresh soil, I think it was just like releasing either cold air, warm air, something was just making it so unstable above us that, you know, it just wasn't really worthwhile staying out. So anyway, once they got done that, we could get some really good views of the double cluster. And then there's a chain of stars that goes up from the double into Trumpler two and had a, had a pretty good, good view of that, uh, that as well. But yeah, just some poking around, you know, just nice to get out at the end of a, of a work week, really. Oh, for sure. Um, you know, a, a, a bad night under the stars, beats you know many other good nights watching tv or anything like that (laughs) and i find like like i was pretty tired you know when uh we were coming out and kind of you know had had, we had dinner and then it's like you know uh you know you almost just want to want to crash out just like in front of the tv or whatever we we don't have tv here um so, so that's not even an option and it's like well my my entertainment out here is is to be doing astronomy so uh that's uh, that's what I was gonna do, and it you know once you get out, like once I get set up and and kind of get going, you know, uh, it, it just feels like you know the day starts all over again. You know, you feel sort of rejuvenated and mm-hmm. uh, you know just just really nice to be out in the fresh air and uh, and doing that. And then yeah, by the time uh, you know eleven thirty or quarter twelve rolls around, I'm ready to go to bed. But you know now that it's darker uh, earlier. You know, I got two, maybe even closer to three hours soon uh, of observing him before before it is dark. So, kind of like I said, kind of hoping Tuesday night. I think that's about uh, the end of it. Uh, the moon will be setting. You know, probably half an hour, forty minutes after it's dark, but uh, then be able to do a, an hour, maybe a half of, of dark sky observing, and then then pack up and go to bed and get up uh, and go to work the next day. I've been doing some extra work, so may be able to uh to sleep in that day or something like that i don't know we'll, we'll see how that goes so yeah yeah so. well and we really should take advantage of these temperatures while we have them it's still above freezing so that won't last forever <laughs> no 
No, it won't. No, that's for sure. And uh, yeah, no, it'd be good. Yeah, it'd be good if uh, if you guys can get out again and uh, and do do another session here uh, before, like you said, before it does start to uh, uh, to get too cold. And yeah, got to figure out a way to to seal in a few cracks here so that uh, we can uh, use this as a bit of a warm room as the uh, as the temperatures go below zero. Because I'll tell you, that really makes the the session quite nice you do an hour or so and then you come in you get warmed up for half an hour 40 minutes then go back out and do another hour and a half or so and you know you, you just don't feel like you're getting that cold you know throughout the night because uh, even at eight degrees uh, that that can start to feel cold by the end of the evening oh for sure yeah yeah it when you're not moving and you're just sitting outside it it really gets into your bones and and then you know if you kind of let it get too far it's it's almost the you know, unrecoverable, you know, you just, you can never really warm up. It seems. Yeah. Yeah. So what are your plans for, for observing you have anything on your, uh, your docket to, to observe in the, in the coming nights, if you can get out? Well, yeah, you know, as long as Jupiter and Saturn are up, those will be on my list. Um, have looks and hopefully, you know, catch a night of really good seeing where you can crank the magnification. Um, and then for the dark sky stuff, I've kind of like two projects going and, and, and so one of them is just the Omira book, the hidden treasures, you know, I'm, I'm kind of curious about, uh, observing all of those and comparing my notes with his. Um, and then the other one, which doesn't require a dark sky, but, um, sometimes requires uh, good horizons that, uh, that you have out at your site. Uh, and that's the, uh, the RASC double star observing list. I, oh, yeah. I was pretty active with that kind of over winter and, and early spring. And I've, I've largely ignored it over the summer in favor of planets and, and, you know, other stuff. So I, I want to get back to that. Yeah. I mean, generally here, you know, like even, even last night when it was cloudy, uh, we could, we could hear like some fireworks in the distance and well, they actually during the day they were, they were moving, uh, they were moving someone's old trailer and uh, you know, this, this point of land is kind of like the highest easily uh, accessible piece of piece of land in the whole area. And a whole pile of people like sort of gathered at, at like this spot where we observe to kind of watch like what's going on in, in the, in like the whole, like the whole general Valley area, because it, uh, it really is, like I said, the highest easily accessible spot. Um, it's pretty amazing. You can see, probably eight or nine kilometers up and down. And then you can see about three or four kilometers across the valley. So, you know, it's, it's got quite the, it's got quite the spectacular uh, horizon. You do see lights in the distance, you know, it's not, it's not like a phenomenally, phenomenally dark sight as, as you saw. Um, but it's like just dark enough that it's really good. You can do some excellent observing here. And then, uh, you know, of course we have a, a place to come in and and get warm and uh it's only half hour from the city so you know it's not too bad well that's that's the big part for me like you you can't have everything um you know there, there's that project management triangle of you know what is it like fast cheap and and high quality or something like that pick two of the three and yeah. um you know with an observing site it's it's kind of similar right if you want super dark well chances are you're driving a long ways away um which is a lot of time uh, there's a good chance that there's no real accommodations there. So you're probably having to pack a tent. Um, so if you want something close and convenient, then you're usually sacrificing the darkness. But I feel like your site is just a, a great compromise all around. You know, it's close, but it's dark enough that you can do some really good observing. 
Um, and, uh, you know, you, you, like you can, like you said, Tuesday night, uh, it's a work night, but we can probably get out there for a couple of hours, um, of observing and then get to bed at a decent time and, and go to work the next day. So I think that's awesome. Yeah, I yeah, know. It's, it's really cool to, uh, just to be able to have that. And even last Sunday, it was supposed to be totally cloudy. Like I never would have driven anywhere to go observing. And then just as it got dark, it completely cleared. And uh, yeah, I just grabbed my binoculars, went up and did uh, 25 minutes or so, um, just kind of observed around. It was an, an amazing night, but, uh, you know, did, did some observing. So yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's really uh, nice just to be able to, uh, be able to have that. Yeah, cool. Okay, well, uh, do you have anything left to, to add to this, uh, this session? No, that's everything, Chris. Okay, cool. All right, well, uh, thanks for joining me and thanks everybody for listening. Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.